This is the show that brings to the forefront newsmakers, entertainers, and those making a difference in our lives and in our world. Each week is a new adventure with topics ranging from the most serious and cutting edge to the most lighthearted and entertaining. This is Taking Care of Business with Richard Solomon. Greetings, everyone. Richard Solomon, Taking Care of Business. We are continuing our coverage on the coronavirus and providing our listeners with tools and information to support the community response to the pandemic we're all facing. So today we have noted attorney and a good friend, Lucy Berkman. She's up in Buffalo at the Lipsitz Green to make Cambria law firm, lglaw.com. Her focus and concentration in the law is estates and state matters. And given the crisis that's out there, a lot of lawyers who are not in the estate field have been getting a lot of questions about what to do about this, what to do about that. And we tend to call our experts to help us along. So I thought that maybe we could bring that information straight to our listeners. So without further ado, welcome, Lucy. Thank you for being on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. All right. It's at lglaw.com. If you need to uh, get their website, it's Lucy Berkman, B-E-R-K-M-A-N. Okay. So there must be a lot of new uh, adjustments being made to the way uh, wills are being signed, executed, uh, with all of the social distancing, with all of the people around the state in lockdown. And Mm -hmm. at least it seems to be that this is going to be the way it is for a while. What could you tell us about what's going on and and how are lawyers working around some of the medical issues? So, I mean, the good thing is that we've got some guidance that had, that came out of the governor's office way back at the beginning of April. Um, so when this first started. So since, um, what was it, March 20th, I've actually been working out of my home. My home is now my office with limited availability to come in to my physical office to look at files, take phone calls, things like that. <clears throat> So given that um, stance just alone, it's been, you know, a little, it's just been an adjustment um, on how we actually deal with clients, how we handle new cases coming in. Um, So for instance, in my field with estate planning, estate administration probate, um, I'm doing a lot of conference calls um, where normally for estate planning, let's say, for instance, um, I would be having people come in. I I like to meet them face-to-face. I need to have that face-to-face interaction with somebody if I'm doing their estate planning to get to know them. I'm not able to do that really anymore. Um, So we're doing everything over the phone, um, doing things by email, sending drafts out um, by email. but to get back to um, the, the governor's guidance, um, what the big problem is with respect to signing documents, how do we do that now? Um, there's other states, yeah, yeah notarization. Yeah. So there's, yeah, there's other states that do have electronic notarization um, standards already in place, Florida being one of them. Um, we don't have that. So um, what we need to do at this point in time is if we're not going to, um, you know, be meeting somebody and maintaining social distancing with men, masks on, everybody using their own pen, um, which I have done, um, there is guidance to allow us to do things electronically by video conferencing. So it's a very interesting thing. Now, I personally, I haven't had an opportunity to do that. I almost got there this week, (laughs) Um, um, but I I haven't yet. But here is basically what has to be done. So for instance, if I'm um, witnessing and guiding somebody through signing, let's say a power of attorney, because wills are a different animal altogether. Um, a power of attorney, you know, I'm going to be acting as a notary um, on that document. Um, So my client's going to sign it um, on a video conference where I see him actually signing it. He sees me. Okay. What he has to do then is get me a copy of that signature page electronically, whether it's taking a uh, a, fo- a picture on your phone and emailing it to me. That's fine as long as I can print it out, okay? Um, I countersign it then and send my signature back to him. <laughs> so it's this multi-step process, but he can use that then on that original document as an original signature. What then has to happen, though, is I need the original document back with ink on it, his original ink on it signature, within 30 days of signing it, and then I, again, once again, sign it, and I can notarize it and back notarize it, basically, back date it. So it's kind of this 
multi-step process. Um, given my field, we have a lot of elderly clients. A lot of them do not have access to this video conferencing. They don't even have computers at home. Um, or if they do, they barely use email, you know. Um, so unless it's a, a younger clientele or a savvy, you know, older person um, that's, you know, quick with the, the computer systems and email systems of video conferencing. It's just really, to me, yeah, I'm not going to probably use it so much, unfortunately. So wait, um, let me break this down. So yeah. I guess is is FaceTime and Duo and those kinds of phone apps, mm-hmm. are those okay as a video conference? Absolutely. As long as you can see that person and see them sign the document, that's a key thing. So they can't just be uh, you and I on the phone on our cell phones. Oh, yeah, I'm, you know, somebody telling me I'm signing this document. That doesn't cut it. You have to actually see them physically sign that document. So so would Zoom Zoom work also then? Yeah, absolutely. They just tip the laptop. Yes. Yeah. They just tip the laptop sort of down a little bit so you can see them signing. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I just wanted to ask because, all right, so can they convey the document by email, fax, or text message? Yeah. So email, um, email. So that could be them converting it to, you know, scanning it in, converting it to a PDF on their own computer, sending me a PDF. Um, It could be a fax over to my office and I go pick it up. Um, or like I was saying, I mean, to me, that could even be, oh, I'm taking, you know, I have so many clients that'll, that again, aren't, aren't that savvy with the, the, with the computers nowadays, they'll take a picture of something on their cell phone and send that to me, you know, as a text message or on an email, you know, as long as I can see that I can print that document out so that I can sign it, we are good to go. Right now, as an, I'm a fellow attorney, uh, for those who are listening and, um, no, but I guess important disclaimer, we're not here to give legal advice to anybody, but we certainly want to give information to the general public. A mm-hmm. lot of times I receive documents by text. They're very hard to read and mm-hmm. they're very hard to print legibly. So mm-hmm. I guess for people out there, if you can find a better way to do it. Um, yeah. A lot of yeah. copy I machines mean- have scanning capabilities in them, at least the newer ones. Right. And if it was, obviously, it's some, if it's something I can't read, I'm not going to be, you know, countersigning that at all. So let's, let me ask you this question. You're in Buffalo and mm-hmm. I'm here in Queens and I, I need you to notarize me for something. Is the, does the notarization take place in Buffalo or in Queens? Oh, yeah. Well, it's, what, what it's, count? I'm signing it. I'm signing it, you know, notarizing it for you. Um but what do you put on for the note? In other words, when you put state of New York County of blank. Oh, con- I put, I would be putting County of Queens. Okay. It's no, cause that's no different than me going up to, I mean, we have, um, you know, Erie County, Buffalo is in Erie County. We're very close to Niagara County. I do work up in Niagara County. I do work down in Chautauqua, Cattaraugus, Genesee County. So all of this Western New York area, you know, if I go to Niagara to meet a client up there, um, on any, on a normal occasion and I'm notarizing, you know, a document that they've just signed for me, it's going to be, you know, state of New York County and Niagara on there. So now let's bring this forward. Uh, as I remember from the bar exam, (laughs) (laughs) you need three disinterested witnesses to witness a will. Um, actually it's just two. We just need two. Oh, uh, (laughs) is it two? But I guess they always use, I guess the better practice, it's good that you pointed that out. I guess the better practice three, because this way you have at least a spare in case somebody's invalid. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I have seen that done on occasion too. Um, and a lot of times um, people will do that, you know, if it's, um, let's say it's your, your executor who you've appointed under the will, who's signing as a witness or, you know, some other um, party who might be a contingent beneficiary or something like that, you know, they'll have three on there. Um, generally, I'm just using two, um, but we're completely disinterested because it's myself and maybe my secretary or my paralegal. All right. So how does the signing and witnessing of wills work now that mm-hmm. we can't necessarily be conference rooms all next to each other and right so it's kind of the same thing if you're going to be doing it as a video conference okay um the will itself does not need to be notarized okay so that makes it a little bit easier 
Um, you know, so, I mean, you can still do this by, by video conferencing. Um, if I'm seeing somebody, somebody, um, a testator, we call them the person signing the will. If I see the testator sign it, um, we go through a, a set of, you know, questions, standard questions that we ask someone, is this your will? Um, you know, are you revoking all prior wills? So on and so forth. Um, they're going to be answering it the same way they would if it was a face-to-face, um, in-person meeting with them. Um, they would, again, be sending me electronically what they just signed so that I can sign as a witness. And we have to go through that whole, you know, kind of rigmarole again with the back and forth with this document. The interesting thing um, about the will is, you know, generally when we're, when we're ex- executing wills, we have both of our witnesses there at the same time. But Actually, under statute, you don't have to do that. Um, it can the witnesses can sign at different times. Um, I don't think it's done frequently like that, but that is a possibility. Um, so you could get into an instance where you've got a video conference with one witness at one time, and then the next day or an hour later, you have a video conference with your other witness. Okay. Um, again, it's just a lot of work involved <laughs> with doing that. Um, more, but my more, I'm more concerned with something called a witness affidavit and a testing witness affidavit um, that us as attorneys, we 90% of us, I'm sure, attach this to the back end of the will. And what that does is it just alleviates and, and streamlines um, things later on when we're going to submit this will to the surrogates court for admission formally into the probate system. Um, it prevents us from having to track down witnesses 20 years after the fact or and or bring people in to testify that that's a valid will. So we have this nice little clean affidavit that's attached to the back end of the will. Under normal circumstances, if we've got everybody in the room together, us as witnesses, we're signing that affidavit right then and there. We're not going to be doing that necessarily um, with these video conferences, right? So I have to do it after the fact. And we have to tweak that and adjust it, the language in that now, so that it accommodates the fact that, well, we saw them do this by video conference and they said this and that X, Y, and Z to me, um, and we're doing this in accordance with, you know, uh, governor's executive order, this, that, you know, and the numbers. So it's just a little bit more difficult, but it is possible. Is there any any requirement that these Zoom things be recorded if it's practicable? Um, it's not, but it, it, it's probably a good idea because, um, and it's actually a thought that I had too, because if you ever got into a situation where it was a will contest, um, you know, one of the things that um, somebody looking to contest a will, um, one, of the, one of the ways they can attack that is, geez, was it signed correctly? Was it executed correctly? You know, so if you can record something and show that, well, yes, I mean, this person said that this was his will. I saw them. It's here on the video. You know, it's just one more thing to boost and to bolster the fact that the will was executed correctly. So I do actually think that's a good idea. Now, the problem is certain modes of interactive video communication don't really have record buttons. And then storage is an issue as well. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I guess all of this has to be worked out. It does, yeah. Um, uh, do you foresee any innovative ideas that are going to come out of this? Because it looks like there's not going to be a lessening of social distancing for a while. Yeah. Well, I will I will give you a couple of examples of what I've done so far. And it's this isn't, you know, novel. I've heard of other attorneys doing this, too. So it's not just me. <laughs> um, I have had a couple um, will executions um, a few weeks ago. Um, and what we did is we, uh, you know, literally met on someone's front porch um, we went through the documents. They signed it. We maintained social distancing. We all wore our masks, and we all used separate pens, um, and we were able to get everything done. Um, the only thing, you know, if somebody wants to do that, I'm more than willing to do that. The only thing I'm requesting them do is to bring their own witness. You know, I just don't feel that, you know, I should be asking someone from my own office to, you know, necessarily put themselves at risk because I need them to witness somebody's will at their house, you know, um, 
and I, I imagine that's a liability on our offices anyways. So um, if they bring their own witness, I'm okay doing that as long as, again, we maintain the social distancing, we're wearing the masks, and everybody's using their own pens. Um, you know, I'm okay with that. And that, you know, alleviates this whole video conferencing, trying to email or fax documents or text documents back and forth. Um, the only thing that it's, um, the added thing that it, it results in is the, again, these witness affidavits, where normally if it's just myself and my paralegal signing this affidavit, I can get it notarized then and there. I can't do that because I certainly can't notarize my own uh, signature. I'm not going to be notarizing the witness's signature either. So we have to do that after the fact, and I still have to tweak the language slightly on what we usually use in our office. But I mean, it's it's not um, that big of a deal. Let's put it that way. All right. Um, let me ask you this question, or let me actually make a, a point here because I have about two minutes left in this section. Mm -hmm. a, a friend of mine, a longtime volunteer ambulance person, used to always walk around with his own pens, would never touch anybody else's pens, and would always tell me, don't use pens at banks, don't use the, the pen at the supermarket, just don't use anybody's pens because that is the greatest source of contamination. So when it you is. say that, that and elevator buttons. <laughs> well, they're work, they're working on uh, elevator <laughs> buttons being uh, somewhat contactless. But to, just to reiterate, when when Lucy's talking about everybody's bringing their own pen, she isn't mm -hmm. kidding because I heard about this twenty years ago. Uh, but now it's a grim reality uh, to to look at your own pen. We only have that's like a, a great that's a great point. And I just um, when I've done these signings, I I've actually you know I went out right before the first one that I did, and I purchased a, a whole package of pens myself because you know I didn't know what you know people were going to be coming there with. Um, so I said, listen, I've got here's a free pen. <laughs> it's not the greatest quality, but you know, just take one of these. Um, and we, we lawyers in the estate world too, we have a kind of a hang up with people using blue ink and the same pen too. So <laughs> um, at least if it's the same brand, we're okay. Um, so, you know, if, if I can bring my own pens and, you know, they're clean, I know nobody's touched them, um, that's better. You know, what, we, what we're trying to avoid at the end of the day is somebody signing in blank ink and then somebody else signing in blue. Gotcha. All right. This is Richard Solomon with attorney Lucy Berkman from the Lipsitz Green Law Firm, lglaw.com. We're talking about estate, estate issues during the COVID-19 epidemic, giving you some insights as to how the practice of law has changed and how social distancing has affected the signing of documents and instruments. We're going to be right back with more information. Keep tuned. Hey, this is Johnny Rulo, and you're listening to Richie Solomon on 88.1 FM WCWP. Welcome back. Richard Solomon, Taking Care of Business, WCWP, 88.1 FM, Brookville, New York. Okay, so we're with Lucy Berkman. We're continuing our show on estate planning issues and the impact that the uh, COVID-19 virus has had on the practice of law within the estate field. But what I didn't do and what I would like to do right now is kind of talk about all the different kinds of documents that are in play in the estate field. As I understand it, there's powers of attorney, healthcare proxies, living wills, wills. We hear all these names. We hear them on television. We hear them in television shows and movies. But I don't know that there's a real understanding as to what these documents are used for, how they're created, why they're created, and what, what expires or how they expire and what's revocable mm -hmm. and things like that. So maybe you can give us a nice little summary of all those different documents, how they work and what they do. Sure. So um, we kind of, when we're thinking about estate planning, we, there's basically the three big documents that we're always really worried about and concerned about. One being the last will and testament, um, another being the power of attorney, and the third being your health care proxy, which we, I combine with a living will as kind of one document. Um, so first, I guess I will touch on 
what operates out of those three, what operates while you're living? Because a lot of people um, have a misunderstanding of that um, in and of itself. So we've got a power of attorney and your healthcare proxy living will. Those are in operation while you are living. They do two completely different things, okay? The healthcare proxy and living will, it's pretty easy, okay? That is a document where you're appointing someone else to make medical decisions for you if you are incapacitated. So let's go back to coronavirus, okay? You're in the hospital incapacitated on a ventilator. Um, You can't make your medical decisions. Who is your doctor going to go to? All right. Now, there is a statutory framework in place that your physicians, your hospital will look to if you don't have a healthcare proxy in place. And it goes in pretty much logical order. So you've got a spouse or significant other, your children, um, brothers and sisters, parents, things like that. And it goes along down the line. Um, It ends up actually with your next close friend, believe it or not. but if you, have, if you have a preference as to really who you want to make these decisions, you need to have that written down in a healthcare proxy, okay, that everybody knows about. Um, so, for instance, sometimes I will have clients come in and let's say their spouse has predeceased them, all right, and they've got three kids out there. All right, they need to make a decision as to, geez, which one of those three kids can sit here and make a tough decision because really that's what it comes down to. When somebody's asking, when your physician's asking somebody else to make medical decisions for you, you can imagine what does, what you are like in the hospital, right? So you need to have somebody in there that can make that decision. Um, You can only have one person named at any given time for obvious reasons. You don't want people butting heads with each other. Well, mom wanted this or mom didn't want that. Nobody can make a decision, right? Um, So if you have a preference, you, you are better off having that healthcare proxy in place. Again, that's the person making medical decisions for you in the event that you cannot, okay, you're incapacitated. And alongside with that um, is that living will. And what that does is it basically tells your healthcare proxy, your agents, excuse me, your physicians, what you do and you do not want in certain medical conditions. And generally, it's something that's, you know, an irreversible terminal type illness. You're in a coma. Your physicians really can't do anything else for you in terms of medical treatment. Um, you know, in this document, you can say, yeah, keep me on on everything forever, you know, for two years or, you know, a month or whatever, or no, I don't want to live like that. You know, you can just, you know, let me pass away naturally. So those are, that's what those two documents do. They work hand in hand with each other. All right. It's just healthcare decisions. The power of attorney question, on the... Question, question. Yeah, sure. All right. So do the documents say... Anything about, you know, if one or two or or physicians state the med- like like in other words, what do the healthcare proxies base their decisions on? Uh, is there like a rule? It's got to be one decision or two independent physicians, or it doesn't matter. But how do they? In other words, how do they decide what to rule upon? Like, what's their source of their information? Well, unfortunately, their source is going to be you. So you need to make sure that you have a conversation well, I mean, okay, with your healthcare med- I'm, agent. No, I'm talking about the medical condition at, at issue. So oh, words- that's the, that it's it's strictly based on incapacity, um, and it's something that your physician um, makes note of that in your, your medical um, file. So in other words, if you're sitting up in a hospital, maybe you're sleeping at, at you know, the time the doctor comes in, he's not necessarily going to be asking your, your healthcare agent, oh, hey, you know, uh, am I supposed to do this or that or put him in this surgery or give him this drug or something like that? No, I mean, you're sleeping, you're not incapacitated. You've got to be really incapacitated. You're in a coma. Um, you're, you're on such pain medications. You're out of it. You can't comprehend anything anymore. Okay. It's really bad. And it's something that is, um, that your physician makes a determination again, and it's noted in your medical record. And that's when they ask you, they start asking your agents. Right now, but could you, could you ask in this kind of document that your irreversible state 
is confirmed by more than one physician. You could, yeah. you could. So you could have. You basically, uh, they're very tailorable um, to the individual circumstances. So uh, I can tell you, in my office, I have a general format that I use um, that I will, you know, present to a client, and you know, I say you need to read, make sure that you really read through this, obviously, um, to make sure it's what you want. And I've had on multiple occasions, you know, conversations with the client um, who, you know, geez, I really don't like this language. I don't want that language in here. I want this. And I, I have actually included language to that effect um, in, in um, documents before. So, I mean, it can be as simple as you want it or as extensive as you want it. Okay. There's no state form for something like this, in other words. Okay. So where, where do you keep these documents before we move on to the next one? Because if somebody is in a coma, nobody can mm-hmm. necessarily ask, Hey, where do you, you know, where's your healthcare right, proxy? Right, right. So again, to me, it comes back to having a conversation with these people that you're appointing, whether it's the healthcare agent or even the agent under the power of attorney or your executor under the will. You know, um, a lot of times, you know, the clients will just say, okay, you know, I'm going to tell these people where these documents are in my house um, and they have full access to that. You know, it's in this file cabinet over here. Okay. Um, with something like the healthcare, um, the healthcare proxy, that's something you should be, you know, giving to your physicians, you know, whether it's your general physician or a specialty physician, you know, when you go in to the, to their, their office the next time or make a special trip out there and say, Hey, listen, I signed this. I need to have this on file with you. Um, Otherwise, you know, I, I leave it really up to the clients um, if they want to provide copies to their agents right away, they can do that. Um, but again, I put that on their shoulders, really. That's not um, our responsibility, um, I don't feel. Personally, as the attorney, I can only advise them as to what they can, you know, what they might want to do. And if they want to go above and beyond, then, you know, that's up to them. All right, question, question. Uh when you use the word copies, uh, do you need mm-hmm. to have original copies or copies will work? Um, I, you know, with the, with respect to the proxy, I mean, it's going to be, again, in your physician's record anyways. If you have a copy, I believe that's, when, that's okay. The power of attorney is a different thing, though. Um, so let's say the client is going to provide their agent that they've appointed under the power of attorney a copy, a photocopy of that document. I always warn them that that should not be accepted by anyone or any entity out there. It should be an original um, or it should be a clerk certified copy, meaning that entire power of attorney has been recorded formally in your local county clerk's office. Or it can be um, attorney certified. So I have um, a special stamp. You probably have one as well um, that you can affix to the document to say, hey, listen, this is a, a, a true and complete copy of the original, and I, I sign that, and I sign off on that. And that actually counts as um, an original as well. So legally, under our statutory framework, those three are, are the only ones that should be accepted. So again, I go back to, okay, you need to have a conversation with your agent then as to, okay, where are you keeping this in your house? You don't want your agent to really have it in their hands right away, but it's over here in my house. You have, you know, you have access to it if, I, if you need it. Alternatively, um, and I can't speak for other firms out there and other attorneys, but we always have our clients sign duplicate originals. Um, so we keep one on file here. So if something happens um, where we have a call from the agent, hey, something happened to mom, I need the, the power of attorney, I need the health care proxy, can you provide that? Of course, I'm going to do some due diligence behind that to make sure everything, <laughs> like, I, you know, I should be re- releasing that to um, the son or daughter, but that is a possibility as well. Right. Now, I don't know that we got into power of attorney. I think we just went No, through. not yet. So let's talk about that. <laughs> Okay, so the power of attorney is something, again, completely different from the healthcare proxy where you've got an agent making these medical decisions. Your healthcare or your power of attorney, I, you know, I, I look at it as a business type document. Um, you're appointing an agent to conduct business for you if you can't. And it doesn't matter if you're incapacitated or not. So that's, the, that's kind of a key point to consider and think about, too, when you're signing these. 
Um, so it could be under your direction while you have full capacity. I, you know, as an example, I, you know, point you, Rich, as my agent, and I'm in Florida doing something on vacation. I say, gee, you know, Rich, can you take my power of attorney and make this banking transaction for me? You'd be able to do that, okay? Otherwise, you can actually have language within the document itself. It's called springing language, where you can restrict your agent from acting only upon your written direction or upon your incapacity and incapacitation, and then we delineate and describe what that when that actually occurs. So it could be by two physicians looking at you and determining that. It could be by a court um, determining that you're incapacitated. Um, so I've added that type of springing language in you know documents from time to time too. Um, but generally, again, I mean, this is somebody who can conduct banking transactions for you, tax transactions. They can sell your stuff, sell your real property for you, um, conduct if you own businesses. They might be able to step into your shoes and conduct certain business-type transactions for you, speak to Social Security on your behalf. So there's a, this whole slew of powers that you can authorize an agent um, to do for you. Um, and unlike the healthcare proxy where we can only appoint one person to act at any given time, that's not the case under the power of attorney. So you could appoint one, two, three people um, to act jointly in concert at all times, or you know, maybe you've got, again, three, we'll go to the three kids example. Okay, one of them's here in New York, one's in North Carolina, and one's in California. All right, maybe we, we appoint them all as your agents, but really, you know, we want the one in New York to be acting in the first instance, and then the second, and then the third. Okay, so it's, it's very, it's a fluid document. It's very tailorable, again, to the needs of the clients. Um, I, I don't ever have one that looks like another. Let's put it that way. Okay. Um Power of attorneys are used generally for non-estate non non stuff, more um, like transactional you, stuff, like a deed. It's more trans yeah, it is more transactional. I don't want to go into too much detail because I think um, it gets it gets too you get too bogged down in them. But there's there's a lot of things that you can actually do with these. So um, nine times out of ten, I'll be dealing with um, someone who is maybe in their 60s coming in um, to get this power of attorney drafted. They never had one before. Maybe they did. We're beefing it up now. Um, there is a lot of additional authorizations that you can add into these documents to allow your agents to conduct extended estate planning for you and also Medicaid planning. So we're worried a lot about Medicaid planning a lot of times. So we add specific powers into the document to allow for that to happen. Um, so not only does it, you know, cover just general, let's say banking, because that's what, you know, normally I think when people think of power of attorney, oh, banking, they need it for banking, um, you know, or real estate. But it can go beyond that and really cover a really broad scope, which I like to see, especially in the Medicaid planning realm, which we do um, and I do in my office, um, because there's a lot of things we can do in terms of um, planning for assets and, uh, you know, it's usually the son or daughter coming in to act for mom or dad, you know, um, in terms of this Medicaid planning. And if I don't have the requisite authorizations in the document, there's not much we can do okay, <laughs> for well, them. So, for, for those who are listening, what is Medicaid planning? Has, what is that? Um, so a lot of people are worried, well, my goodness, if I'm in a nursing home, if I have to go into a nursing home for chronic care, how do I pay for that? Um, I don't know what it's like downstate by you, but up here, you could be looking at, you know, anywhere from 10000 to, you know, twelve, thirteen, fourteen thousand dollars $14,000 a month for nursing home care. So how do you pay for that is always the question. Um, and... A lot of people do not have the assets, okay, the, the underlying assets to pay for that. How do we do that? Well, we, we plead to the state um, and have them cover your cost under Medicaid. 
Um, so in terms of asset planning, there's things that we look at, there's things that we can do, especially with real property in advance um, to plan for, it's just, it just preserves certain assets in terms of Medicaid. So it's basically um, asset, and allow, protection. It's asset protection. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. And it allows you to qualify for Medicaid. Um, but again, if we don't have, if it's last minute planning, we call it crisis planning. Um, if you, if it's an agent, especially the agent acting, they don't have the power to do it. I can't help them, you know, or if someone didn't come in early enough, sometimes I can't help you. <laughs> right now, what so, is early enough? What's the look back period? The look back period is five years, wow. five years. Okay. So if we're going to be doing, you know, planning now in terms of, let's say, um, we want to give our kids a, a sum of money or we want to transfer a house to them which is a big thing that we do. Um, we have to be very cognizant because if you're 80 years old and you come in and say to me, well, geez, I want to give my house, I want to do Medicaid planning. I want to, I want to, you know, transfer my house out to my kid today. And I'll look at that and I'll say, well, you're going to be taking a chance that you don't need Medicaid in the next five years because the five-year look-back period is going to be the date that you submit your Medicaid application to the state or it's actually the local Department of Social Services, they'll look back five years. So we got to get get past the five years. And at 80, you know, do you want to take that chance? Do you want to take that gamble? Hence the trip you know. to the vitamin store. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. This is Richard Solomon with a noted attorney and friend, Lucy Berkman, with the law firm of LipsIsGreenLGLaw.com. We'll be right back. Hey, this is Scott Schenlinger, and you're listening to Richard Solomon, WCWP 88.1 FM. And we're back. Richard Solomon, Lucy Berkman, attorney from Lipsitz Green up in Buffalo at 42 Delaware Avenue. They are at lglaw.com, and they are an incredible firm. And they have a lot of different departments, and uh, I, I invoke my good relationship with Lucy Berkman to bring her on the radio and to talk about all the different estate planning tools and, and documents, especially in light of the uh, lockdowns and problems that we're facing with the virus and the epidemic that we're all uh, sheltering in place and doing what we can to keep ourselves socially distant. So we were talking about power of attorney and mm-hmm. that it's such a weird word because, you know, you and I are attorneys and yet the power of attorney in the document lets people do things that we can't do. Like we can't just go up to a bank and say, well, look, I'm, I'm Joe's attorney. I'm just, I'm going to transfer money for him. I'm his attorney, right? I have the, I have power of attorney, right? I'm his attorney. Look, look at e-file. I'm all over the place. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, that's a great point to bring up to um, Rich because uh, yeah, people get very confused over this, and I don't blame them. Um, so I, I think if we just eliminate, you know, don't think of it as a, your attorney that you're you're hiring, myself or you. And it's, it's your agent, somebody who's stepping into your shoes to conduct activities you normally would be conducting yourself. I think that's the best way to look at it. And you can look at your healthcare proxy the same way. You know, I don't like that word proxy either because people don't, you know, seem to understand that or they get confused, um, you know, as to what that means as well. It's your agent. It's somebody coming in to make these decisions, to conduct these transactions, these activities on your behalf, um, again, either under your direction or if you're completely incapacitated and can't do that anymore. So, so would, you, um, would you basically say it's like a permission of authority or a grant of authority? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. So, so we talked yeah. about. So we talked about the living will. We talked about the healthcare proxy, and we kind of touched upon the power of attorney. So I guess yeah, that and kinda, those are the all, those are all the documents that are in place while you're living. They somebody who is appointed under those documents act while you're living. As soon as you pass away, forget it. They can't do anything. Those documents are done. All right, but it, if you are brain dead, let's say, God forbid, mm-hmm. um, you're still alive legally, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so those documents yeah, correct, are still yeah. in place. So yes, those documents yeah. work until there's a certificate of death. Correct. Okay. So unfortunately, when that time comes, how does the will 
situation work in? Yep. So, so that's when what that's that that's a time that we're looking to see is there a will in place? Um, if there is, we're looking to see okay, who did you appoint in your will? Who did you name in your will to act as the executor? Again, another you know legal term there. That's basically the person who's going to manage your assets after you pass away. Um, gather everything, pay your bills, your debts off, and then distribute your property the where where it's supposed to go, either under New York State law or under the terms of your will, whichever is in operation at that time. Um, so the importance of having that power of attorney and that healthcare proxy in place, you know, I, I can't stress that because there are so many times where. Um, you know, people will come in, they don't have one or the other, um, and then it ends up being, okay, uh, you know, I need to conduct a banking transaction for mom. She never had a power of attorney in place. And uh, now, you know, she has, you know, long, far gone Alzheimer's. She's in the nursing home and I need to do all this stuff. What do I do? You might be faced with the legal guardianship situation. You know, you could have had a power of attorney in place years ago, um, and now your own family has to get legal guardianship over you for thousands of dollars. So it's not a good thing. So these documents are, are highly important to have, and honestly, at any age, too. You could be 18 years old, as far as I'm concerned, and you should have these documents in place. Apart from that, the will in and of itself is extremely important, too. And I will get people coming in and saying, well, oh, everything's, you know, joint, jointly titled, um, husband and wife. And I say, well, that's, that's fine, but what if you both die together in a car accident? Okay, that's one situation. Or um, I'm obviously always concerned about the last to die. You know, because now you've got everything individually titled. And while I may not have had to do anything estate-wise for you once your, when your spouse passed away, because everything did pass to you, is all jointly owned, um, it's always the concern upon the last to die, too. And if you want your desires um, met in terms of who gets what in, of your property, then you need to have that down in stone in a will, because otherwise... There's not a lot that we can do to to help you after you pass away. Um, so I get into this situation a lot of times where, you know, people will wait until the last minute. And you and I were talking about um, this before we got on air. Um, just this week, you know, I had somebody who um, was extremely ill um, in the hospital, not for coronavirus. It was just underlying health conditions that they were um, having problems with for months. Um, but, you know, the, the goal was to try to get a will done for this person, you know, basically on the fly um, while they were in the hospital and certain circumstances surrounding, you know, what they wanted in the will. I needed to, to hear this um, from the person, you know, by phone or in the hospital in person um, before I could get anything done in writing. And it just wasn't possible. Um, the person ended up moving into hospice right away and then um, passed away um, that evening evening. Um, so, you know, in here, there was an underlying concern about mm, whether all kids were to inherit something or not. Um, and, you know, without a will in place, if really that was the person's intention, there's nothing that could have been done in that instance without the will, you know, because under state law, all three children of those of the deceased person now inherit. So, just by that example alone, I think that, you know, impresses upon, you know, everybody that you really need to get that document in place, unless you really don't care, <laughs> which is a lot of people, you know, they do have that attitude, um, funny enough. But um, no, it's a, an extremely important document. Um, going back to kind of, you know, what we need in terms of getting that properly executed it is you know technically just the two two witnesses who are disinterested meaning they're not taking anything underneath that will um but as long as you have that um and you've seen or you've heard from the horse's mouth the testator that yes this is my will it's my signature there um you you're good to go on that all right so i watch okay. movies from time to time and you mm -hmm. see things like where someone's in like a Oh, I don't know. Let's say they're in a boat. The boat's sinking and the guy turns the recorder on and says, I'm not going to make it. 
So uh, my Aston Martin goes to this one and my jewel collection goes to that one and blah, blah, blah. And then yeah. the tape washes ashore, of course. Yeah. And, you know, some Boy Scout finds it, <laughs> gives it to the right people. And, you know, then you see this whole, it, it all unfolds. Does that work in real life? No, yeah. unfortunately, no, Only- unless you're in war. If you're in war, it works, but um, otherwise, no. Um, and, you know, going going to the, you know, watching TV um, comment there, there's, I, I often get calls about the reading of the will, too. <laughs> Um, and you know, there, there's no requirement that we bring everybody in the room and read a will, um, all together in a room either. You know, if a family wants something like that, you know, we could accommodate, but, um, you know, I, I don't think that they're really going to want to pay for that at the end of the day either. That's so funny Um, because soap operas are famous for those kinds of scenes where they're all gathered around (laughs) seeing what they're going to (laughs) get. Yeah. You know, they'll have, you know, they're all there with great anticipation. You know, what did grandfather, you know, uh, the, you know, the CEO of this industry, you know, who, who's getting the stock, who's going to be the next CEO, who's going to be the treasurer, you know, and, and, you know, and, and of course someone is always disappointed and it leads to conflict in another season of, you know, drama. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So no, so so that's actually not done in real life at all. It is not done in real life. The the best that we do is we will put people on notice that they're a beneficiary in the will and that's it, you know, and then they kind of wait it out until we're ready to make distributions at the the end of the, there's a a waiting period. Um, So, but that's, that's basically, that's, that's what you have. Um, so yeah, me, and I also want to caution uh, while I have this on yeah. the top of my head too, I caution people because, um, you know, we have a lot of tangible objects, you know, um, that we accumulate throughout our lifetime. And sometimes we want certain objects to go to certain individuals and whether it's one out of the three kids. So, you know, let's say I want all my jewelry to go to my daughter, you know, my son doesn't care about it, but my, I want everything absolutely to go to my daughter. You want to make sure that you've got a will in place that provides that um, within the contents of the will as a directive to your executor, too. Um, there, you, you'll see sometimes in Will's language about, well, you know, I want my my executor to follow the list that I leave with my will that says that painting on the wall goes to this person and my jewelry goes to that person. Um, And they kind of just lump it all together. And I just caution people and I always forewarn people that that's fine that you do that, but your executor in this state is under no obligation to follow that. Okay. Yeah, so if you are steadfast, you want something going to somebody individually, just make sure that it's in the will. I always make sure it's a specific, um, it's called a bequest, specific bequest in that will. If it's something really nominal, um, you know, like, I don't know, some books that are, (laughs) yeah, yeah, or I'm not kidding, I've seen plants. Somebody left plants in their will. I won't do something like that because I know at the end of the day when I'm trying to um, administer this through the court system, it just causes more paperwork <laughs> at the end of the day. Quite frankly, I won't do that. You know, I said, well, you can have your little list that says that. I don't think anybody's really going to fight over plants unless you have some sort of, you know, fantastic orchid cr- collection or some other exotic thing going on. Um, that's a different story. But if it's just, you know, your regular you know, your fern in your house. No, I'm not going to put that in your will. <laughs> All right, so we, we only have uh, six minutes left. I want to do the lightning round of questions. So, okay. Cause I got a lot of questions. Yeah. So going back to soap operas and movies and TV shows, someone's on their deathbed. And of course what they do is they, they're, they're like, ah, son, <coughs> you know, here's the keys to the car, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, you know, or, or the plane is now yours, you know, whatever. Does that yeah. work? 
No, and that no, that doesn't work either because, and I, I don't know how many times we get that. Well, mom told me I was going to have this. Is it in her will? No. Well, I'm sorry. Unless your brothers, you know, agree to it, fine. That's all right. You know, you guys can agree amongst yourselves. But if there's fighting, that's probably not going to happen. Right. For for let's say you have a number of people who are, I guess, what legally called potential distributees. And yep. some people are omitted. Are those the people that get a, a postcard saying that they didn't get something, uh, or that, but they may want to have an opportunity to challenge? How does that work? Yeah. Okay. So uh, that would be, you know, if you're if you're not being left something, you're being disinherited. Then we we know that there is a will in place. Um, and what we have to do in order to get that will formally admitted through the court system, because it's not, again, it's not, um, here's another misunderstanding too. You know, the will is out there. It's a nice piece of paper. It's ex- it's executed. It's signed by your, your testator, your witnesses and everything. It doesn't operate. It's not fully legal until it's passed through the court system. And, and the court system says, yeah, that's a valid will. So what happens is even the person or the people that are disinherited, they do end up getting a copy of that will because we need them to sign a piece of paper that says, hey, I'm okay with that will and being disinherited. And if they're not, they're not signing that piece of paper. And then it opens up into court proceedings to contest a will if they so choose. All right. So back to the movies again. Yeah. Um, Child one gets, you know, $100,000. Child two gets $200,000. But child three, instead of being disinherited, gets $5. So, Mm -hmm. you know, and then you you see the shock and horror. And then the fancy lawyer says, well, you you weren't really disinherited. (laughs) You know, how, how does that work? Um, they could they could still come in and challenge that will because you know they have grounds to stand on perhaps um, to say hey no it wasn't executed correctly um, and there is a presumption that it was executed correctly if it's under attorney supervision um, but you know they could say well geez you know uh, child number one and two exerted such undue influence over mom that you know she was forced to sign that will or maybe they promised her something if they signed if she signed it this way or she didn't have have the capacity, the legal capacity to sign that, you know, she was, you know, far gone with Alzheimer's in the nursing home. So, I mean, they could potentially come in and still contest that well, even though they got the five bucks. Um, sometimes you'll see um, provisions in wills that prov- they'll discourage contesting of the wills, um, but you got to be real careful with the language because it still may allow somebody to come in under those specific grounds to throw the will out. Yeah. Uh- we only have like two minutes left. So mm-hmm. that was just phenomenal stuff. Um, I was just trying to think if there's anything that I could ask that that's a, like a really quick thing. But what, one thing that comes to my mind in the last minute or so is I've noticed that a lot of people don't do pre-planned funerals. Like they don't mm-hmm. prepay them or get a plot. And then even though they've done all these legal things, they didn't do what was really necessary um, for their, fi- their truly final disposition. Uh, do you mm-hmm. do you talk about that in in another minute? I, I do. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, it comes up a lot actually with Medicaid planning because it's a way to um, if you have to spend down assets, you have too many assets to qualify for Medicaid. It's a great way to spend down your assets on something that's valid and will not penalize you um, for Medicaid purposes within that, even if it's done within that five year look back period um, or even within a few months after your of your, you know your Medicaid application in certain circumstances. Um, so this is a great way, to, a great thing to do. I always ask people if they have it and I encourage them, if you have the funds to do it right now, think about doing it. You know, nobody wants to talk about death or think about themselves dying. Um, and by going into the funeral director, obviously you're doing that. Um, but I, I encourage people to do it anyways, because you know what, your family is going to be in this, this grief mode after you pass away. And it's one less thing they're going to have to really think about and sit down and, and, and think about. Um, so if you have it all planned out for them, I think you're doing them a favor. Um, so, you know, twofold, you're helping your family during their time of grief, and you're also um, doing something that could help you in terms of Medicaid planning later on down the road too. All right. Lucy Berkman, attorney at law in at 42 Delaware Avenue, Buffalo, New York, and uh, lglaw.com. 
I can't thank you enough for your very valuable insights, your wisdom and expertise, and for being with us on the show today. Thank you. Well, thank you. 